you find yourself not having enough sleep. You hear about a ritual that promises you more control over the hours you need to close those heavy eyelids and wake up refreshed. That ritual means having to resist the power of the Sandman himself. And you see these delicious berries glistening with juices ripe with flavor and, well, ripe with something else. Something squirming and wriggling. Listeners, your first story is How to Beat the Sandman, a ritual-based episode that will pull you in. And our second story is Explicit, Not for Little Ears and Light Stomachs. If vomiting is a trigger for you, avoid the second story. If insects, maggots, and bugs are triggers for you, avoid this episode. You've been warned, brilliant listeners. Now turn the lights off, the sound up, turn that hourglass every hour, and be careful what you eat. How to Beat the Sandman Having difficulty staying awake there? Trying to study for some big exam? Finish some last-minute assignment that you put off all weekend. And it's now three in the morning, and you're absolutely exhausted. Or perhaps you were in a similar state recently, and are looking for help on what to do. Well, friend, I have just the prescription to ease your weary mind. All you need to do is win a game. Setting up the game is relatively simple. All you need is an hourglass, a candle, and a marker. Let me make one thing specifically clear. You need an hourglass, not one of those rinky-dink 30-second pieces of shit you get out of a cereal box or board game. Before playing the game, test your hourglass to make sure that it takes an hour or slightly longer to drain out all of the sand from one section to the other. Having it take slightly longer will help, but too long or too short, and you'll run into complications during the game. You must also be completely alone in the room while playing. When you are ready to play, choose any room that can be sealed, simply meaning that all doorways and windows can be closed. Any other form of timekeeping device or alarm must be taken out of the room prior, or the game will not begin. The hourglass will be your only time-tracking tool, hence why having an accurate hourglass is important. Anything with an electronic display should also be removed. This includes TVs, cell phones, computer monitors, anything. Leaving them in the room during the game will put you at a massive disadvantage. You may begin the game at 8pm. Make sure the room is sealed, drawing the curtains to block any outside light. Then draw a simplistic hourglass shape on the back of one of your hands. Make sure to remember well which hand it was, since you'll mostly be in the dark for this game. Take the candle and light it. Then turn off the lights and sit down on the floor with the three previously mentioned objects close together, and flip the hourglass as the sand begins to fall into an empty half. 
The only source of light should be your candle. Now, yell something. Along the lines of, I'm not tired, and I refuse to go to sleep. Close your eyes to the count of ten, and open them again. You won't be entirely sure, but somewhere in the room, you'll think you can see the shadowy outline of a man. You have now begun the game, and your opponent is none other than the master of sleep himself, the Sandman. Do not provoke him, and do not speak to him either. You have challenged him, and in a way insulted him about his profession. So he's not in the best of moods, to say the least. Now comes the game. Your task is to stay awake as long as possible, to a maximum of 8 hours, which will take you to 4am. Every hour you must flip the hourglass to reset it and keep the game going. Each time you flip the hourglass, you may take the marker and draw a tally mark on your arm. The specifics of which arm you mark will be explained later. And don't think you can just flip the hourglass 8 times really quick. Or just draw eight lines on your arm. The hour needs to pass in order for the magic to work. If you fail to flip the hourglass before the very last grain of sand falls, or should you succumb to sleep, you will lose. During this time, the Sandman will be deploying as many tricks as possible to get you to fall asleep or to give in. See, the bottom half of your hourglass at any time represents his power. The more sand in it, the stronger his influence will be. Almost immediately upon starting, you will begin to feel drowsy. This is merely his presence. If you can't last against this, stop playing immediately. During the first hour, he won't do a lot. He may walk around the room, but he won't touch you or speak to you. Even if you try to talk to the being, which is something you should really avoid doing, there will be no response. Also, don't move from your spot to approach him. The closer you get, the more drowsy you will become. And if you're not near your candle, he may put it out so you can go to sleep. Do not distract yourself during this time. You may easily lose track of time and forget to flip the hourglass on time. The Sandman can also skew your perception of how much time has passed, but he cannot affect the hourglass. So keeping your focus on that is your best chance of winning. Side note, if you try to leave the room, you will find that the doors are all locked, and the windows reveal nothing but an unyielding darkness as far as you can see. After you pass the first hour, the Sandman may scoff, but will continue to stay in the room. Now, he will begin to pull more from his bag of tricks. He's seen that you're going to be a hard one to put down. The sounds of music boxes and harps may be heard, at first from a distance, but will slowly grow to a level that would be audible and comforting. Resist the urge to close your eyes and listen. Your body will grow weary as you approach hour two or three. 
depending on how the Sandman is feeling that night. Around this point, he will begin speaking to you in many voices. The soft voice of a young girl, the wise cackling laugh of a grandparent, or perhaps even in the ever-loving, recognizable words of your own mother. They will try to congratulate you on surviving for so long with the Sandman, for braving sleepless days and nights to win this game. Whispers of lullabies and nursery rhymes will fill your head. But you know better. Say nothing. And ignore the voices. No matter how real they may seem, don't listen to them. Do not go to sleep. If you manage to make it to the halfway point, and now have four marks on your arm, you'll be nothing less than exhausted. And the Sandman will be nothing less than enraged. He will begin to manipulate your environment even more and start using new tactics to get you to sleep. Instead of trying to lull you to sleep, he will attack you. Hallucinations will occur. You'll see horrifying images of the dead hanging from the ceiling, flashed by a spotlight of unknown origin. The room may start to close in, and then stretch out and close in again, and stretch back out. A whisper in your ear will turn into shouting in your face from an invisible source. Already weakened and sleep-deprived, your remaining energy will be drained in bursts from his terrors. You may have sudden adrenaline rushes, sure, but the Sandman is clever. He'll time them so that you can't just survive to the next hour by simply being anxious. He'll wait until your emotional state has fallen just another level lower. And then, BAM! Two rotted feet dangling in front of your face. You can scream all you want. You can beg for him to stop, but this will only use up more of your ability to function. At the six hour mark, the hallucinations will shift between horror and comfort. While the Sandman will begin to pick your brain and find what nightmares caused you to come to a cold sweat many a night, Others will coax you towards slumber, claiming that you've put up with enough and that you deserve your rest. A warm bed to tuck yourself into, a pillow made from the softest of furs and feathers. The harps and music boxes will start to overload your sense of hearing. In your state, you may welcome the chance to sleep, but snap out of it. Have you been watching the hourglass? Make sure his terrors aren't distracting you. This is why you don't talk to the Sandman. For every tiny detail about yourself you give him, he will use against you here. This is also the part where electronic displays can become a massive problem. They will turn on, regardless of whether they are powered or not. And should you gaze upon their mystifying image for too long, your eyelids will droop and your body will collapse onto the floor. If you had just turned the screens away, the Sandman might use some muscle and turn it back towards you, so you can get a better view. The curtains may open to a brilliant dawn or a clear blue sky, but the only truths in this room are your arm and the hourglass. Unless you have eight marks, this game is not over. Use any ounce of strength you have to flip that hourglass. 
Now, an immense chore from the Sandman's influence. Scrawl a line down your arm with the marker. Even if it looks like you're taking a knife and slashing your own arm open. During the final hour, the Sandman will begin to address you directly. Asking you questions that appear to be simple. But as you are, you can't even remember what 2 plus 2 equals. A question is the hardest thing to get out of your head. So don't let it get in. Cover your ears and just watch the hourglass. Keep those eyes open. Don't fall asleep. If the question gets in your head, you'll start to think about it, adding more stress and draining you of what little mental will you have left. It might become hard to breathe, as if something is squeezing your lungs out, or the air is dense and hard to take. The Sandman will also get physical, grabbing you and throwing you across the room, leaving you to crawl back to the hourglass before time is up. If you catch a glimpse of his face, it may be enough of a nightmare to haunt you and keep your eyes from shutting. There will be no distinguishable facial features save two bloody eyes, the lids torn from their sockets, endlessly staring. If you can't take it anymore, at any point before the eighth hour is completed, take the hourglass and break it with all your might. Both sections must be broken for the game to end. For your sake, I hope it was made of glass. Anyone who has made it to the seventh hour mark has never had the strength to successfully break it, and either carried on or surrendered to their dreams. You will not receive a reward for ending the game this way, save the mercy of avoiding the Sandman's wrath. If you do make it to the end of the eighth hour without falling asleep, you will not need to flip the hourglass again. Simply make the eighth mark on your arm and close your eyes. Though you ended the game, you cannot sleep just yet. There's one Final task remaining. All you must do is wait for the Sandman to collect the hourglass and say, You're all grown up now. Sleep when you wish. Open your eyes and find that the hourglass is gone and the candle put out. Now, you may collapse in slumber. A 12-hour slumber, to be precise. The game puts a heavy strain on your mind and body, so recovery is necessary. But it's the last sleep you'll ever need, or at least to that length, because once you're fully recovered, you will be able to stay awake for an extra hour for each tally on your marked arm. Depending on your normal sleep schedule, this may mean you only need a small nap, maybe an hour or two at most, but for some, you'll never have to lie down again. Sure, you will have the ability to do so if you want. You can even still dream, but there will never be any weariness following you. Just think of how productive you can be. But it's not all sugar plums and gumdrops, 
if you mark any tallies on your arm that was not marked by the hourglass, you will instead require more sleep. One hour for each tally on the blank arm to be precise. You will require more rest to be able to even function throughout your day. Now, these marks can cancel with the wand on your marked arm. But if that's not the case, you may have just gone through all that suffering only to come out worse than before. And what with your delirious state throughout the game, it's unlikely for the average individual to come out with all their tallies on the marked arm. There are also the circumstances of losing. If you fail to flip the hourglass, then the Sandman will gain full power. And with a snap of his fingers, you will collapse to the ground. Regardless of how you fall asleep, be it by failure of the hourglass or succumbing to your own tiredness, you will also sleep for 12 hours to recover. But it will be the worst sleep you will ever have, and the Sandman will make damn sure that's the case. The worst nightmares will flood your mind, leaving you unable to escape, or wake up in a relief-filled cold sweat. All you can do is endure the torture of a dream that feels like years in length. And when you finally come to consciousness the next morning, there you will be. Lying on the floor of the room, the marks still on your arm, and blood flowing where your eyelids once rested. You said you refused to close your eyes and to go to sleep. The Sandman has simply granted that wish. Written by Red Nova Tyrant Berries when I was younger, my family and I lived in a rural part of the state that didn't see much of civilization. We lived in a small hamlet of about 93 people across nearly 40 square miles. It was set back in the woods, and at times was a mystical place during my childhood, and at other times it was downright terrifying. Our community, if you want to call it that, was strung together with a network of unkept dirt roads, that the Count had long forgotten. Potholes and boulders lined the sides of the roads, and it wasn't uncommon for overgrowth to make passage impossible until someone chopped it away. It was on one of these roads on a late June afternoon that the story begins. My brother and I had just finished a triathlon of basketball, catch, and playing in the pool. After we dried off, our parents told us to get dressed. We were going blackberry picking. One of the perks of the overgrowth on the roads was that a large portion of it was blackberry bushes, and being on the roadside and not on anyone's property, we were free to legally pick as many as we wanted. My brother and I lit up at the news because the blackberry hall each year was turned into jams and cobblers, and also just eaten after only being washed. Blackberries were our candy. We dressed down in our thorn-resistant wear, cotton long sleeves and denim jeans. It was late enough in the afternoon that the heat of the day had dissipated to a comfortable 72 degrees, so the full-body clothing wasn't too much of a hassle. My brother and I each grabbed the bucket, one of those cheap Walmart Easter buckets, and we all loaded into the van. My dad drove us down the road to our normal blackberry spot 
and we all got out of the car. Don't wander off too far, Mum told us as my brother and I searched for the optimum patch of berries. We expected big, juicy berries that would inevitably stain our hands and probably be thrown at each other in jest. But what we found was disappointment. What berries there were were dried and shriveled black husks that had been subject to the heat of the past few days. What hadn't been claimed by the sun had been carried off by the birds. We looked for a few more minutes, going deeper into the brambles. Perhaps because it was so thorny, the birds hadn't come in here, nor had the sun reached through the thicker canopy. But still, the only berries we found were of the shriveled and dried sort. I gazed, disheartened, into the thick of the woods past the brambles. I imagined that there was something out there, waiting for us to cross the thorny threshold into its territory. The berries may have dried up, but we were two plump, juicy kids, ready to be eaten by a beast with innumerable teeth. Bruh! I shook the thought from my head, telling myself that it was nonsense and that I was almost 13 and needed to remove such childish thoughts from my head. Still, I couldn't shake the feeling. The woods held wonder and magic, but they also concealed the things that lurked in the shadows beyond the reach of human sight. Having successfully spooked myself, I nudged my brother and told him we should go back and tell our parents of our findings. He agreed, slightly irked that our endeavor had yielded such poor results. We dozed our way through the brambles, stomping down dead vines and pushing aside the thorny branches that tried to catch us. I emerged on the roadside with numerous scratches on my hands, but it wasn't any different than any other year, so I held little worry. We had tried wearing gardening gloves one year. We either ended up crushing the berries, or the gloves snagged on the thorns. Either way, we decided that bare hands was the way to go. So we suffered the scratches in exchange for the berries. Mum and Dad were leaning against the van, buckets at their feet, talking. They saw us and asked if we had found anything. Our harvest was mirrored by theirs. We all climbed back into the van, and decided to drive up and down the road until we found another patch of berries. I gazed out the window the whole time, imagining the beasts I had thought up sprinting through the woods, catching the scent of my thoughts and following us. It was insatiable, and wouldn't stop chasing us until our meat was in its belly. I shook my head again to clear my mind. Ugh. I shook my head again to clear my mind. Too much Stephen King, I thought. After circling back and taking a different route, we found a patch of berries that boasted full, almost bursting fruit. My spirits soared as I saw the berries, my mind washing away all thoughts of the nameless horrors with visions of cobbler and jam. Childish excitement flooded my veins as I practically leaped from the van. My mother sent out the same warning as before, and we absentmindedly agreed. As we rushed over the ditch and into the brambles, the berries were huge, at least the size of a quarter. Some of them were almost past ripe, and the juices were starting to spill from the splits in the flesh. These didn't go into the buckets, but rather were eaten right there. We were young and lived in the middle of nowhere. Eating unwashed fruit wasn't a concern we had. 
The amount of berries we gathered were huge. In only five minutes, I had completely covered the bottom of my bucket by about an inch. I moved to another berry bush when a scent stopped me in my tracks. It was bitter, sweet, and smelled salty. I called to my brother and asked him if he could smell that. He sniffed the air and made a face. We had trouble placing it at first, but then we remembered one day at school when a classroom's air conditioner had broke and the same smell filled the room. Sour water. As we moved further into the berry patch, the stench strengthened. Despite the fact that the berries were a lot bigger here, we decided to turn back and go find another area. We retraced our steps and found ourselves back at the roadside. We heard our parents romping through the berry bush and decided to try and catch up with them. They had almost filled a bucket between them and jokingly asked why they were so far behind. I told them about the sour smell and they advised us to stay away from it. Wanting to fill our buckets, we joined them in their harvest. The berries in this area were large as well, but the stench wasn't present. We trudged nearly a hundred feet from the road into the brambles before we came upon a property marker. We decided to go no further, and instead, my parents suggested that we look where my brother and I had stopped, despite their previous advice. I brought this up to them, but they waved it off as the whole we're adults, we know what we're doing thing. So, like dutiful soldiers, my brother and I followed our parents into the fray of brambles and thorns. After five minutes of picking, our parents led us to the spot where we had stopped picking. The smell lingered in the still summer air. My dad sniffed and said that it was nothing to worry about. It was just the smell of standing water. My mum's eyes grew wide at the size of the berries, exclaiming how good they would taste in a cobbler. The thought of the dessert wiped away the doubt that lingered in the back of my head, and we began to pick. We picked until each of us had a full bucket, and still more taunted us as they hung from the vine that had grown unchecked. Mum picked a berry off and plopped it in her mouth, smiling at the sweetness of it. Dad followed suit, as did my brother and I. A regular blackberry has a pleasant sweetness with a small tinge of bitter, but these were like globs of honey. A single berry seemed sweeter than the entire haul that we had gathered so far. Its nectar flooded my mouth and threw a smile upon my face as my eyes widened at the taste. The aroma, the chewed fruit filled my nose as I reached for another berry, Another, and another. Ten minutes must have passed as we mindlessly gorged ourselves on the fruit, mindless of anything else. Popping one final berry into his mouth, my brother looked up at the darkening sky. The sun was setting. We had come out to the patch at around four o'clock. Had we really been picking berries that long? My dad made not of this, and we all packed into the van. Our bellies full and our spirits happy. We didn't eat supper that night instead. We just put all of our haul into colanders and washed them in the sink, leaving them to drain overnight. I fell into a deep sleep that night. 
I remember because it was the last restful sleep I would get for a while. The next morning, I made my way into the kitchen where our parents were bagging, smashing, and cooking the berries. The bagged berries would be frozen and be eaten as snacks. The smashed would go on to become cobblers and jams, the latter of which would be sold to our neighbors, and the cooked berries were being reduced down to a syrup for later during breakfast. I asked them if they needed help, and they said they had it. So I woke up my brother and convinced him to go on a walk through the woods with me. When we set out amongst the trees, the sun had just started to crest the clouds of the morning. Through the green of the sparse canopy, the sky burned a magnificent pink, as the morning stars faded from view and the moon stood solitary in the earth shine. The air was fresh, as it usually was in the woods, and was still cold. Birds tweeted as he made our way through the woods, no real goal in mind for the hike. We each found a wizard staff, a gnarled tree branch to use as a walking stick, and we moved deeper into the forest. The canopy was thicker here, and the sky had begun to take on the pale blue of morning as the pink melted away into the scattered clouds. We came across a creek that bubbles through a trench in the earth, and started throwing pebbles in it. I heard the crumple of leaves and was immediately snapped out of my serene mindset as visions of the nameless beasts from the berry patch flooded my thoughts. I saw it in my head to be lurking behind us, its claws extended from marred hands and its shoulders hunched in anticipation, waiting for the right moment to attack. It was angry. I knew that we took its berries. It was what we had smelled yesterday when we were picking. We took its food and now we were the food. I tensed up as I imagined it slowly creeping up behind us, yellow drool dripping from its rotten teeth, its eyes filled with sick and hatred, and an insatiable hunger in its belly. I couldn't take it anymore, and I whipped around, ready to face the beast. Nothing. A sigh of relief. <sighs> Removed most apprehension, but not all. It was then that my brother groaned. He was on the ground, sitting in a fetal state, clutching his stomach. I dropped the pebbles in my hand and skittered over to him, alarmed. What's, What's wrong? wrong? Are you, Are you okay? okay? He battered me away and bent over to his hands and knees. He yelled in pain as he clutched his stomach with one hand and a sudden spout of vomit erupted from his mouth. I reeled back in horror as it splashed into the creek. His whole body heaved as he collapsed onto his face, puke ejecting from his mouth and nose and mixing with dirt. I tried to lift him up, but he feebly battered me away, grumbling something incoherent before another vocal explosion of vomit oozed out of him. He tried to sit up, but the way he clutched his stomach told me that he was in too much pain to do so. Instead, as I stood there watching like a helpless fool, he smothered his face into the vomit mud as more and more flowed from him with each violent wretch like pus from an infection. Tears streamed down his and my own face as I watched my brother wriggle in his own vomit, unable to move due to the pain. I stood in fear, unsure what to do, and then it hit me. 
At first, I thought the urge to puke was just an effect of witnessing him puke. But then I felt the pain. At first, it was like gas discomfort. But then it moved. It moved. The pain wriggled in my guts, and I felt a hot column of vomit surge through my esophagus. I wasn't ready, and it exploded through my closed lips and out my nose in a blinding pain. The wriggling went deeper into my flesh, and soon I had joined my brother on the ground, the sound of my own retching vomit drowning him out as I shut my eyes and let the dark of my vision turn white. With the blinding pain that surged through me, I wasn't even aware of the hot refuse throttling out of my throat after a while, and time seemed to stop, as whatever it was in my guts gnawed away at my being and squirmed deeper into me than I thought possible. The scent eventually hit me and caused even more vomit to erupt from me and muddy the ground in which I writhed. It smells sweet like blackberries. As another acidic wave pulsed up through my throat, the blinding white turned to grey, and finally to black. I don't know how much time passed before I was nudged awake. I resisted opening my eyes, but a sudden flash of pain blasted my eyelids open as I rolled over into the mud and heaved. Nothing came of it except mucus and spit and it was the same for the next three heaves. Finally, I got control of my breathing and focused on the pain. It wasn't like earlier, moving and squirming, but was instead localized in the middle of my guts. It felt like a throbbing mass, but it was manageable. My brother stood above me, his face and side caked with mud. He leaned on his walking stick and prodded me once again with his foot. We have to go home, he croaked weakly, still holding his stomach. I asked him if he had throbbing pain too, and he nodded. I stood up and I felt like every single one of my joints had sandpaper between them, dried mud that clung to my skin and shirt, smelling of blackberries and earth. But the throbbing pain, the want to get home, overpowered any will I had to brush off the dry dirt. I painfully retrieved my own walking stick, and we slowly made our way home. Each step was agony. The forest seemed like an endless plain of infinite trees, the songs of despair whistling through the leaves, and branches on the light summer breeze. No birds chirped, and no animals scurried as we shuffled through the leaf-covered floor of the forest. Even though my brother walked next to me, a sense of singularity and doom descended upon me, and I felt that, at any moment, death would claim me for its own. An immense sadness pulsed through my veins, as the throbbing mass reminded me of my own mortality. There was no future to this life in that moment, and my only purpose was to suffer. As we made our way back to our house, two more surges of puke found their way through my mouth and onto the earth. My brother collapsed once. We just, we need homes, and Mum, Dad, will help us. I slurred as I painfully leaned over to help him. After what seemed like an eternity, we saw our house in the distance through the damnable trees and thicket. 
Our arms were scratched to hell from the branches and thorns of our crawl back to salvation, and the throbbing had moved once more through my gut. But the sight of home sparked a hope in me that I cannot describe. We stumbled drunkenly up the stairs to our front door and weakly turned the doorknob. The smell that greeted us extinguished the hope that our parents would help us. The scent of sweet blackberries and earth filled my nose. I collapsed onto the vomit-soaked carpet. My brother stumbled over me as hot tears of frustration and pain flowed down my cheeks. I was laying face to face with my mother, her own cheeks flushed red. I remember looking into her bloodshot eyes and thinking that this is how I must look. The whites of her eyes were red and her skin, apart from the scarlet flush of her cheeks, was pale and clammy. A line of vomit and mucus dripped from her nose as her mouth lay open. Her labored breath blew the stench of the berry puke into my face, forcing a flow of my own refuse to flow out of my slack jaw. Her eyes widened as she erupted, splashing my face and mixing with my own. It was a vicious cycle until both of us heaved air. My brother, having heard our wretches, had convulsions of his own, and I felt his wetness creep over the carpet and soak my back. The bitter taste of it all lingered in my mouth, counteracting the sickly sweet smell. I watched as Mum's radiant blue eyes rolled back into her head, and her jaw opened more. Her breathing became more labored, and the fear of my own death was washed away, as the fear of my mother dying flooded my being. I summoned as much strength as the pain would allow and stood up, using the slippery wall as a support. My brother was curled into a fetal position as I stepped over him. I used the wall for support. As I searched for my dad in the stench-ridden house, I found him unconscious next to the phone, which lay on the floor. The same sickly sweet purge lay around him, and I knew that it had to have been the berries that made us sick. It was the only thing we all had in common. A sudden surge of pain throbbed through my guts and forced me to the floor, where I fell into the vomit-logged carpet. I rolled to my side, the floor moistly squelching beneath me and I grabbed the phone. The simple act of walking to this point and reaching for the phone had taken all my energy. As my labored breath roughly ran through my burned throat, I dialed 911 and put the handset on speaker. After slurring an explanation to the 911 operator and giving her our home address, the darkness of unconsciousness dared to take me once again. That is, until the throbbing in my gut suddenly shot into my bowels. No, no, no. I cried pathetically, as I felt hot mush run down my side and pull into my pants leg. The throbbing pain was now a stream of burning heat that threatened to pull my insides out of me. It kept coming with splotches and eruptions of hot shit. Helpless sobs racked my body as I heard the same sound erupt from my dad and the stench of death arose from our bowels. I felt it flow out of the foot of my pants and into my shoes as I lay there, paralyzed. A new fear strung a core within me as I felt something wriggling against my leg. No, not something. Many things 
I felt the tiny stick of insect legs prick against my skin, as whatever I released from my body crawled over my soiled form. It was alive, and it had been inside of me. Darkness finally took me as another spurt erupted from my bowels. I saw white when I woke up. At first, I thought that death had taken me, and that I was in the afterlife, but the beeping of my pulse told me otherwise. I became acutely aware of a needle in my hand and the uncomfortable angle of my bed. Hospital. I tried to sit up, but I was too weak. I turned my head and saw a nurse dressed in mini mouse scrubs. I remember those damn scrubs so vividly. They are burned into my mind. I remember the look of shock, joy, and relief on the nurse's face as I asked for water. And I remember the sadness that moved across her smile like day turning to night. I got my water and fell back to sleep wondering why she had been sad. I came to what seemed like seconds later, but after I cleared my brain of fog, the same nurse in the same scrubs told me that it had been more than a week since I had asked for water. More IVs were stuck into my arms, and I felt, for the most part, okay. I could tell that she was hiding something from me, and the way her sadness seemed to keep itself below her surface. I asked her why she was sad, and she said that I would have to wait for the doctor. Over the next two days, I slowly regained my strength by eating soft and liquid foods and walking slowly to the bathroom. The throbbing pains was no longer present, though my guts were very tender. On the third day the doctor came in, he checked my vitals for himself, asked me how I was feeling, and then told me to ready myself because he had some bad news. I kinda already knew what he was going to say, and hot tears started to run down my face before he broke the news. Mum had succumbed to the berries, her body had lost too many fluids. I cried and told him that none of this should have happened. They were only blackberries! I sobbed snottily into the doctor's lab coat. I cried until my tears had all been spent, and then I wailed until my lungs burned with acid and my throat turned to dust. The doctor held me the whole time, staying silent and squeezing me gently. I cried myself to sleep on his shoulder. I dreamed that my brother and I were back in the brambles, being stared at by the beasts of the woods. No longer were its shoulders hunched, no longer were its eyes full of hate. Its matted hair swayed in the breeze as it approached us. Neither of us felt danger from the beast. It stopped a few feet in front of us, just behind the wall of brambles. It opened its maws, revealing hundreds of shiny, needle-sharp teeth. It spoke, its voice both deep and high-pitched, like the rumble of thunder intertwined with the shrill of summer cicadas. The ground is poisoned. All that grows here is sour, ill, Dead. Do not eat again from the bitter earth. The price has been paid for your trespasses. It faded into the dark backdrop of the woods, and my dreams slowly merged into something beyond recall. Over the next week, 
I regained my strength through an hour of supplemental therapy a day, and started to eat solid foods. I was told that my brother and father had regained a good amount of their strength, and that they were on their way back to good health. At the end of the week, my dad and brother walked into my room along with a man I had never seen before. He introduced himself as a grief counsellor. It was the normal, what do you do now stuff, and he gave us a variety of resources and hotlines to aid us in the grievance and recovery. We hired a clean-up team to redo the house, and stayed in a motel about 30 minutes from home for the next two weeks. One night, as I was getting ready for bed, my brother noticed a large zit on the back of my leg. I looked down and saw a half-dollar-sized red mound with a sickly white head. I looked at my brother and noticed that he had one just under his sleeve on his upper arm. We brought them up to our dad and he said that he had noticed one on him as well. He told us not to pop them as it might lead to an infection, figuring that it would go away on its own. I snuggled into bed. The next morning I awoke into a dim light by a burning sensation in my leg. No, not just my leg, everywhere. I whipped back the covers and cried out in horror as I saw that my lower legs were covered in large zits as were my arms, and I felt tender spots beneath my shirt. Horrified, I started bawling as I shook my brother awake to tell him but he cried out in pain as I felt something ooze out of my hands. My dad was woken by the commotion and groaned in discomfort as he rolled in his bed to turn on the light and see what was happening. As the lights flooded the room, I saw that my brother was also covered in these mounds, and what's more, they were pulsing. I looked at my hand, where I felt the ooze and reeled in disgust as I saw a maggot inch its way up my thumb. I fell onto the floor in my stupor, feeling my own zits burst like skin bubble wrap. I cried in pain as I got to my knees and felt worms, maggots, whatever they were, crawl from the zits all over me. One after another, they emerged from the popped infections and tumbled down me, covered in blood and pus. I heard the plap against the carpeted floor of the room. Oh my god! My dad shouted as he stumbled out of bed, his own infections popping audibly as he slammed into the wall. My brother was a bit more careful and painfully eased himself out of bed. Dad picked me up, the pressure from his grip allowing more maggots to crawl out of each of us and bolted out of the door with my brother behind us. He went back to the hospital and the emergency room balked at the sight of three people dripping maggots from their skin. The people in the waiting room either ran out in disgust or stared in horror. We were swept in immediately, and the same doctor that had let me unleash on his shoulder saw us once again. He stared, medically intrigued at the amount of maggots oozing out of our collective flesh. We were put in isolation and administered a number of drugs. After another stint in the hospital lasting two weeks, the maggot pools dried up. We had to have minor surgery done to remove each and every maggot pod. Luckily for all of us, each pod was only in the skin and surface muscle. They had avoided our more vital organs. The doctors were baffled. They drilled us with questions, and we all referred to the berries that had made us incredibly sick to begin with, 
a frozen sample of berries was taken from our home, and after just a few days of analyzing the berries, we received word on what had made us sick. Occupus laciniatus lays its eggs in the ripening fruit of blackberry bushes. The larvae of this beetle are incredibly small and eat the flesh and nectar of the fruit. The beetle only chooses the sweetest berries to lay its eggs in, and it does so by splitting open the berries and putting them inside. That day, when we gorged ourselves on the berries, we introduced hundreds of these larvae into our body. We had been being eaten from the inside out. This story was written by Zaito Rex. Well, wasn't that an eye-opening experience? The Sandman really does wonders when it comes to slumber. And what about our second story, the thought of your body being infested with insects, these creatures living in our bodies as parasites, oozing their way out of our pores. I hope no one was eating whilst listening to the second story. Now, a big thank you to my Patreons. You awesome people keep the blood of this show pumping. We have Matthew J. Bauer, Lee Bauer, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crescento, Mace Joe, Paige Marcini, and Peter Raffaelli. A big shout out to Paige Marcini for our most recent supporter. Thank you so much for showing this show your love, and thank you to all my Patreon supporters who support the show. And lastly, a very special shout out to Matthew J. Bauer, who is totally supercharging my Patreon support page. When the new content comes to your lovely ears, listeners, it will be because of Matt Bauer. Thank you so much, man. Also, my internet is no longer on the piss, mate, so I'm going to catch up on emails and start doing a lot more research. Rest assured, I've been thinking about all of you, and the frustration of being unable to reply is, frankly, exhausting, to say the least. So, I'll be working hard to answer back in two days' time. This Wednesday, there's going to be some old-time radio 